This is the iMarket Podcast, brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL, and Capital FM. In this episode, Funke shares her amazing career progression working with different corporates in Africa, including BAT Nigeria, Samsung, and Coca-Cola in Africa. She also has diverse experience working at advertising agencies and shares how she accidentally became a spread visualizer or copywriter. Funke has benefited from mentorship from various ogas who she says trained her with love. Funke explains that marketing is her third love and opens up about how love did bring her to Kenya. Funke is an amazing storyteller and a powerful presenter. So let me not say more and leave you to enjoy the episode. Today I have a very special friend in the studio. I'll call her a Nigerian Kenyan. I think my favorite Nigerian Kenyan who I know who lives here. Her name is Funke Michaels. Welcome, Funke, to the iMarket podcast. Thank you, Ibera. So let's start by sharing with the audience. Tell us a bit about who you are, your work experience, what has shaped you. I know this could go on forever. I was going to say, do you have all day? (laughs) I have all day. So please go ahead, Funke. Well, I like to say that um, I'm a little Lagos girl who has been opportuned to walk around the world. And somehow that walks brought me here to um, Nairobi, where I sit today. And like I said to you earlier, it's been all marketing. I got here because of that first love for what I do. I am what you call a culture communicator and all brands marketer. It means that I have the expertise, key skills to market just about any brand, business, persona. It's because this is what I love to do. Funke, why did you get into marketing? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I don't know about the why. I should say how. Okay, tell us how. Because when I got in, it then explained why I was there in the first place. Years ago, after my first degree, which is in English language and literature, I went back home to Lagos, and I have always had a sketch pad. And one weekend, my uncle, Dr. Balaji Ogunlari, went through my sketch pad and said, oh, wow. You would do well in advertising. This what was real. on the sketchpad? All kinds of things. And one of those, I think what caught him was that one day I sat in the kitchen and while his wife was cooking, my aunt, Yomi Ogunlari, um, I made a drawing of that kitchen and I zoomed in on the lemon fresh. There's a, <laughs> a bottle of lemon fresh okay. washing up liquid yeah. on the sink. Uh-huh. So I had the sink, the window, the cooker, and the lady, and then there was a lemon fresh and it looked like an ad. Wow. And so it got him thinking, and he sent me to his friend who owns an ad agency. And I got there, I met the MD, who okay. took a look at my sketchpad and says, but you know, we've just finished hiring visualizers. Okay. Let me send you to the creative director, and he'll know what to do. So I get sent to this gentleman called Doing A Deal With Me. I always say, I don't know what possessed Doing A Deal With Me. But instead of a visualizer test... He gave me a copywriter's test. Okay. And um, apparently I aced it because I was hired that day. And that was the beginning of my adventure on the advertising side of marketing. I was in advertising for quite some years. I left Central Spread to join STB McCann. So you started on the agency side? Yes, I did. At Center Spread. That was your first job where you were the visualizer slash copywriter. That was my first full advertising job. Before that, I'd done quite a lot of informal advertising in the sense of printing calendars, everyday cards and things like that. Oh, okay. But full brand management, that was it. 
And then you went to Macan. I went to Macan. And at Macan, uh, I met bigger brands. Pojo was one of them, FC Johnson. I and like then, that you say it as Pojo. You know, yes. as Kenyans, we call it Pijot. Hey, my <laughs> sister. Oh. <laughs> I know the French would cringe at that. Actually, <laughs> it was one of the campaigns that we had to follow with champagne. Yeah, you know, Nigerians are very, uh, we're elite conscious. We know. Yeah, so, you you so, said elite conscious. Yes, we're very <laughs> conscious of certain things, how you <laughs> pronounce certain things, you know, champagne, Pojo. Uh, uh-huh. 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 So you worked on Peugeot? Yes, I did the first Peugeot auto show. Okay. Um, it was eye-opening for me um, as a young um, professional in that field. Okay. I got to experience the brand firsthand. And after that, there was no going back. I, I got put on Sprite and Fanta and then Coca-Cola. Okay. And thereafter, I was seconded to Coca-Cola International. Where, in uh, Atlanta? In Nigeria. Oh, in Nigeria. In Nigeria, at okay. CCNL. CCNL was, I think that's where I found my feet as, okay. as a brand person. I had the good fortune of working with amazing men, men who were happy to hold your hand, okay. show you the ropes, organize work such that it showcased your talent and made you also grow. I worked with Ruben Ombiko, Oario J. Carey. Those are people that... I'm still very much friends with, you know, they're my orgas, they're my friends, they're my family. Love it. And because of that, I have also grown in that direction. I have worked with people whom I call family, I call friends, because those who trained me, trained me with love. And it's resonated (laughs) in every role that I've had. So Coca-Cola was your first brand marketing sort of experience. Yes, it was. Side. And we have that in common. I also worked at Coca-Cola. Amazing. So at yes, hey, so number one brand. I, huh? I did Nigeria for a bit. I also have some interesting Oga friends. That oh, I we have to swap stories on Nigeria. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then w- you went into now corporate, yeah? Yes, I did. So where did you go? So at the time I was at Coke. And I have to backtrack a little bit. So in Nigeria, we write one big university entrance exam. Okay. It's called JAMB. Okay. The Joint Admissions Matriculation Board. Okay. Now, until this time, if you wrote JAM, you had to go to Ikui, that's the office, to get your result. And it meant, you know, millions of people had to come there. So I got on a team that was setting up the tech to take JAM digital. Uh-huh. It meant that you could then get your results online just by buying a scratch card. Okay. And that team was constituted by a bank okay. called Fountain Trust Bank. Okay. So I went into the electronics department and we set this up. It was the first of its kind. Until today, it's revolutionized the way that we give or get examination results. Interesting. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Um, after that, I joined VAT. Okay. <laughs> and um, it changed my life. How did as, it change as your life? As a marketing person and as a person. Okay. Now, marketing-wise, because there I learned brand management from a 360-degree perspective. It meant that I was in charge of my research, my own media, my brand development. It was me. Wow. Essentially. Yes. Now, I had an amazing support team. Trade marketing was the twin of brand marketing. Okay. And so because we had the one marketing director, it was easy uh, to organize a team that was united. Okay. And I felt empowered in that role. I said earlier that some of the best people I've worked with, I've worked with them at work. And one of those people was Beverly Spencer Obatoimbo. 
She was the kind of she was a woman. marketing director. She then. was my marketing director. Okay. She was the kind of woman that I wanted to grow to be. And that says I, a lot. <laughs> Thank you. It says a lot. I, I, I hope that um, one day I'll be able to sit with Bev and we'll talk about this because I've, I've walked quite a long road since I worked with her. But, but she's always remained a key part of my career development. Bev started out as a nurse, by the way. So she was taking care of people before she was taking care of brands. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it taught me a lot about her. She was a, a mother also. And she gave me the nod and the hand. You know, sometimes you, just, you don't just need a hand to pull you up. You need a hand on your spine to support you as you go. She was that person. She gave me the space. She gave me the, the support. She gave me the opportunities. Even when I was pregnant, she gave me work that showcased my abilities. Nowadays, it might be easier for women to be both mother and worker. Mm. It wasn't so easy it back then. Yeah. yeah. And um, Bev was one of the people who made it easier for us to do it. I said earlier that as at the time that I had my son Samuel, who's turning 17 now, BAT Nigeria instituted a six-month maternity leave. Six months. It was unheard of 17 years ago. Yes, my dear. I, I know we, we just did that as Diageo EABL a couple of years ago, but 17 years ago, <laughs> BAT, thanks to Beverly, right? Thanks to I, Beverly I, I remember Spencer listening Obatoyo. to her speak because she moved to Kenya. I, was, I heard. Yeah, she was MD here. I've, I've heard her speak in a few forums. Amazing woman. Amazing woman. So that was very revolutionary of her. Yes, it was. So what did that do for you? The fact that you could do your six-month maternity, come back to work, and still manage both home and work life? Well, there I had a very difficult pregnancy. Okay. I've had to deal with high blood pressure since I was 26. Okay. So all that I've done, I've done with the consciousness of my own vulnerability. Right. And so to be pregnant and at a high-octave job, yes. it was a lot of pressure. But Bev made it easy. I think perhaps I, I might not have that son, but for this wonderful woman. That, that says a lot. Yeah. So what are you doing for other marketers that you or people you work <laughs> with that Bev did for you? Because Bev did all this. Yeah. Like, like I said to you earlier, I, I think that sitting in Bev's shoes, she gave to me what she would have liked to be given yes. in my shoes. Right. She, she was a mother too at that time. Her kids are older than mine. And yeah. she did for me what I have tried to do for every direct report that I've had, male or female. Correct. To give you the space and the empathy yes. that most people don't bring to work. See, we like to think of people as humans who sit behind the desk and meet KPIs. But when you can see the person behind the worker and their needs and their dreams and their limitations and help them to surmount those hurdles. You become more than just someone they report to. Correct. You become someone they respect and love. And it never goes away. It's, it's been nearly 18 years. If Bev walked through this door today, I'd hug her. It's, there's there's we, so much in my life that I um, We will make sure she to listens her. to this podcast. <laughs> we will send her the link. This is amazing. And then uh, I know you moved to Samsung. You worked at yes, Samsung? Yes, I did. How was that? Oh, wow. Samsung was a different kind of experience. I had to learn Korean culture, Korean work culture, Korean gender culture. And how is Korean gender culture, culture. work culture is different <laughs> with the way we as Africans work? I wouldn't say Africans generally. I'll, I'll start with Nigerians. Okay. And you know, Nigerians, we're, we're, not, um, we're not timid people. You're very polite with your language. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're not stupid <laughs> you. people. Uh -huh. No, we're not. Okay. And 
our systems give room for our lack of timidity. Okay. You forgive my bluntness, mm-hmm. my candor, my mm-hmm. clarity sometimes. Yes. East Africans are softer on you. Yeah. We East Africans you will let you down easy. Yeah. Politely with, you know, nice words. So perhaps this little language <laughs> change is the time I've spent in East Africa I've learned we, to. We've um, made you too I, I think so. <laughs> uh-huh. But for the Korean work life it was if you were a company man, you were a company man. Mm-hmm. And you boss was a demigod. Right. You did not dare to contradict him. Well, I, I dared to contradict quite a few. Uh, I can be quite the rebel. Um, mm. And those calculated risks eventually paid off because we as a company needed to take those risks at that time. When a company comes out of its own original, and I, I say original with, with care, I mean initial culture, it's easy to grow within your market and have that culture but the moment you become globalized you start to export your brands your products your culture there is always an intermarriage of cultures and when i teach this i say that culture is a two-way street so when korean business comes to africa it also needs to absorb some african culture correct and that's what i think we're able to do eventually with samsung Okay. So you were managing multiple countries in Africa. Yes, about 28 countries. And as we talk about culture, because (laughs) we know Africa is not a country. No, it's not. (laughs) Africa is a continent. (laughs) And obviously the different cultures that you are experiencing. And again, there's this big, massive brand that you're going into all these. What what was that experience like, Funke? I think it changed me. It helped me to see more than my little oyster shell in which I lived. As a Lagos girl, I prided myself in knowing all parts of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family is from different parts of the country. My parents are from different tribes. Mm-hmm. Actually, from tribes that typically don't marry. So um, I'm an unusual breed of Nigerian. Because of that, I had brothers and sisters across tribes in my country. Okay. Now, working on the brand Samsung gave me brothers and sisters across Africa. Wow. Now, I can basically get on a plane and go to just about any of those countries and I'll be taken care of. Because there's people there who know me, love me, understand me, welcome me. That's the how we've grown those relationships. I'm going to give you a story about my Samsung experience. Um, when I moved to Samsung, I took with me someone who had worked with me before from okay. my Subaru days. And in the early days of Samsung, for her and for myself also, to understand the enormity of the market, we took a tour. Okay. And it took us to several countries. Okay. Now, one of those countries was Ouagadougou, okay. uh, was Burkina Faso, the okay. capital of which is Ouagadougou. When we were going to board our flight in Senegal, it was delayed for about six hours. So by the time we landed in Ouagadougou, it was about 2 a.m. There was no one to receive us. The airport was still under construction. In fact, some cows crossed while oh our plane was about to, to, to taxi to This land. is not the picture we're trying to portray. <laughs> no, but, but honestly, this is where we have come from. Uh-huh. So when you walk into the airport at Ouagadougou today, you need to understand where we have come from, from traveling within Africa. Yeah. It's so much better now. We've done so much to improve that industry and to, yeah. to, to help Africa. Yes. Exactly. To travel within the country. Exactly, yes. to help professionals move around, around each other's markets. Yes. After a day in Ouagadougou, we had to leave. And we went to Nouakchott in Mauritania, okay. which was essentially desert. 
the sandstorms were real. In Mali, Adwana and I got to see a real live sandstorm. Wow. When the That's sand scary. rises up to meet you. It's scary, but it's also gloriously beautiful. Okay. It's a force of nature. We're lucky to be experiencing it from, well, high up in the Radisson, but it yeah. helped, you know, yeah. to see it. Now, when we got to Mauritania, we, we learned a different way of life. It was an Islamic community we went to. Okay. Well, here we were, two um, funky-looking <laughs> career girls from Lagos, yeah. and we were in the desert. We ended up at the home of the distributor okay. who had hired a manager who interfaced with us. Okay. And we sat because with... of language? Yes, because okay. of language. Okay. And we sat with this man's family. He told us through our interpreter that I was the first person in that role who had ever come down to where they were. Oh, wow. So they'd never seen um, a person from Samsung who would come to where he was. And we sat on the floor with the food in the middle and this man fed us with his family. What do you mean he fed you? I, I mean, he would he would take the, the big piece of chicken and he would tear it and put the piece in my hand and move my Lit- hand towards my mouth, literally, literally. and say, eat. <laughs> so that, that's a culture. Yes. And that's a sign of... It's love. It's love. It's sharing a meal. It's giving you the choice parts of that meal. You had a chic feed you. Yeah, I did. Hey, girl. <laughs> I did. I did. Wow. So it was did a that, fantastic what, what experience. What about, you know, you obviously felt you were doing the right thing. Yes. Uh, from a cultural point of view. Not only from a cultural point of view, but also from a business point of view. Mm-hmm. Because when you're accessible to your customer, it humanizes you. And it... it has benefits to the brand. And I've always done this. At BAT, I was known as Maman Rothmans. Mm. It's a northern respectful word of saying you're the mother of a brand. Say it again. Maman Rothmans. Okay. The mother of Rothmans. Okay. Because I would go into the market market and sit on the ground with you. And we would talk about how to move my brand forward. What's your limitation? What's causing this problem? How do we get, you know to surmount it and I would eat with you and, and drink with That's you. That's so important because as marketers we need to be in the trade, we need we to do. be close to our consumers, yes. the traders, everybody yes, on the ground. Yes. Do you see enough of that happening? No, not enough. Not nearly enough. Yeah. And I'm not saying this because I work in the trenches here in Kenya. It's, it's what I choose to do. Mm. It's also because we all need to remember that those little grains make a very big hole yeah. at the end of the day. It does. And if, if we don't connect directly like that. We lose the opportunity to have so many adventures. There you go. In <laughs> fact, when I said doing work for Nigeria when yes. I was at Coca-Cola, right. so the first thing I did is I started reading a lot of Nigerian literature. <laughs> <laughs> you began with Chino Achebe, of course. Of course. <laughs> I'm like, eh, let me at least eh, read from then. But uh, I remember one of our managing directors told me, Waidera, if you do not come to the market hmm. and sit in the market, yes, an experience. Experience. It. You will it. never understand the Nigerian consumer. It will take you at least 10 years to understand the Nigerian consumer. It's very true. 10 years. <laughs> it's very true. So literally when we would go into, into mainly Lagos uh, or Abuja, I mean, that was a thing. Go into the market, yes. do the trade visits, go and just talk know, to the people. Go to a supermarket. Thank go you. to a, the market market, you know. So that's interesting that we don't do enough of that. You know, you mentioned motherhood. I want us to talk a bit about motherhood because like you said, you're a person, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're a marketer. You're so many things in one and we don't want to separate those. How have you managed to manage being a mom and your amazing career? We heard earlier you had, you know, that six month maternity leave with your firstborn. Yes. I know you have many children that came later. (laughs) You're a very blessed woman. Yes, I am. (laughs) 
How you managed to put that together? By being stubborn. Tell me about that. By just never <laughs> taking no for an answer. Okay. By not letting the world tell me that I had to choose between the things that I loved to do. By doing as much as I could. By fitting as much as I can into the hours and the days that I've been given. Motherhood is about the best, the most important job I've ever had. And Say that again. Wow. <laughs> it's true. It's also the most fulfilling. Yes, because if you're a brand manager you get your fulfillment from your figures. Yes. Now, if you're a mother, your fulfillment is every day. You look at beautiful faces who love you unconditionally. Yes. People for whom you live, indeed. Yes. And it makes everything worthwhile. Yes. And so for me, it's been that one gift. And it began with having Sam. Um, when I had Samuel, I was brand manager for Rothmans, like I said to you earlier. It meant that I had to do my work and deal with having to take care of my child. Yes. And some days I'd come home so tired yes. that it was hard to keep my eyes open. Yeah. But I was working in an environment that empowered me okay. as a woman, as a talented African woman. And it helped me to have the courage to do whatever it took. And now kids grow, see, they don't stay little forever. And as they grow, it makes it easier. Um, between Sam and the twin girls, there's 10 years. So the twins are seven. Okay. Um, so at the time I was pregnant with the twins, I was at Harvard. Okay. And I was not a part-time student. We don't do part-time. I ran my program like everyone else. Okay. I went to class. I did my homework. What and, were you studying at Harvard? Uh, I was at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Okay. I was doing my master's in public administration, okay. majoring in public policy. Okay. Right. Because I believe that education and entrepreneurship are the future for Africa. And I needed to yes. be empowered on both the technological and entrepreneurial side from MIT, as well as the political yeah. and policy side, yes. um, which is why I went to Harvard. Okay. Now, on the day that I went into labor with the twins, um, it was the day before my calculus finals. Wow. And um, How did that go? Uh, it went well. <laughs> It went very well, actually. <laughs> uh -huh. The exam was on Wednesday. Uh, so Tuesday night, I started, you know, I could physically see my, myself, you know, I knew what was happening. So I sat up and I remember Michael saying, um, Funky, are you okay? And I said, yeah, sure, I'm fine. And he says, I can see your tummy moving. I said, it's okay. It's called Braxton Higgs. I'll be fine. And um, on Wednesday morning, <laughs> I, I got up, I put my dad in the car. Incidentally, my father had come to visit us. Okay. So um, he needed three people to be on the HOV lane so I okay. could go on the fast lane in Boston. So I put my dad and Samuel in the car. Okay. I drove to school. They took a walk around Harvard Square okay. while I wrote my exam. Okay. At some point, I started to time my labor, my contractions Are at the back serious? of my exam paper. Oh, yes. I'm very serious. Funke. Yes, love. You were timing your contractions yes, as you're yes, doing yes, your I exam. Yes, I was. Ever there comes a day and someone can pick up my exam paper for that class. And my professor was Celine, <laughs> Celine Caligliolu. She find that, yes, I had the minutes done. When, when I got to about 10, 9, 10 minutes in between, um, at some point I got up and went to wash my face. Okay. Um, I washed my face. I, I, you were sweating. Yes, I told Clearly. myself some good words. You were going through labor. Yes, I was. But you're doing your calculus exam. Yes, I was. Mm -hmm. And then I came back and I rounded up. I read over. Uh -huh. And then I got up and I went to Celine and I said, I have to go now. Okay. Now, my professors were amazing and so were my schoolmates. Harvard took care of me. Okay. That pregnancy, the twins are Harvard babies. People would go to lunch and bring me back a snack, bring me back a fruit. Right. And I was loved. I was, we were looked after. Nice. And so when I got up to leave, Celine thought I was 
going to go rest mm. because I was very heavy. Mm. And she says, hurry up and go put your feet up. Mm. I didn't tell her that I was going, going to. to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I got out of the school building, mm -hmm. went into the car park, got in my car, looked for my father mm -hmm. and he brought Sam. Mm. They got in the car and I drove to Beth Israel. Then you drove yourself. Yes, my love. Mm -hmm. And um, well, luckily yeah. I got there and found parking, <laughs> which usually is not very easy to find. Okay. Um, but I found parking and I, I went upstairs and I said to the lady who normally takes care of me for antenatal, I need to see someone like now. She takes one look at me. She says, oh my God, you're in labor. She put me on an office chair like this one yeah. and rolled me over to the labor ward. And um, when I was all set, I took a selfie and sent it to my classmates and said, yeah, we're having twins today. This is <laughs> an amazing story. And yeah. Of how dedicated you were, resilient, the love. It's the love. I've been surrounded by it. I couldn't have done this without it, wow. essentially. But Funke, have you had, um, have you ever come across a time where your work priorities and your home priorities conflict? Hmm. Yeah, because yes, it's not always smooth sailing. No, it's never smooth sailing. And there's no sailing. balance. There's no work balance. No, no. no. I, I don't think that it's ever going to be smooth sailing. Yeah. In order for us to enjoy the symbiotic benefits of work and home, okay. we, especially as women, must find that balance by ourselves. And uh, I've been in positions where I've had to decide where my allegiance lay. Mm -hmm. And in each of those situations, I've had to choose home okay. because home is permanent. And that is my cross-generational legacy. I could do so many other things from home. I can't do home from anywhere else. Very important. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Well said. You. Funke, can you tell me one thing about this pandemic that mm. has taught you to do or not to do as a marketer? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll take both. Okay. Right. To do, I have learned to focus and apportion my time better. Sometimes when we work on multiple brands, we tend to multitask across yeah. them. With the pandemic, I've had to learn to apportion hours to each portfolio that I handle. And I've tried to teach this also in my classes. The other thing I've learned to do is teach well virtually. Okay. Um, so tell us about your teaching. <laughs> Well, I'm a fourth generation teacher. Wow. So both my great grandparents, one grandparent each, and my mother are teachers. Uh, my mother's a professor of finance. Uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, wrote the strategy that became the free education policy for Nigeria. Ish. Beginning with the Western wow. um, region. His name was Chief. Festus Olawoni Awoshika. My mother prefers us to say Dr. Festus Olawoni There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've come from quite a long line of teachers. My grandmother owned a school. And um, from the age, I think, from when I learned to speak, mm -hmm. she taught me. So I have always been taught. So what are you teaching now? Um, right now I teach entrepreneurial marketing. Uh, okay. I teach it at quite a few accelerators. Okay. I've taught at the Women in Tech program at Strathmore University. Okay. I also handle marketing for E4 Impact, the Italian accelerator here okay. in Nairobi. Um, I teach for 
I Choose Life Africa. In fact, um, mm-hmm. as at August of this year, I got a commendation from I Choose Life Africa that says that I have now taught over 21,000 Kenyans what? across 10 counties. You lie. <laughs> I lie not. <laughs> and so during not. the pandemic, how, did, how was your teaching affected? It was affected positively, actually. Okay. I was able to teach more people. Um, reach more well, audiences. That's how you got to the 21,000. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. And, that's how. Well done. That's Thank you. amazing. Thank you. Thank okay, you. So I'm, now I'm you be... moved to virtual. Yes, I moved to virtual. And how did you, you know, you're such a lively spirit. I would love to be one of your classes. Exactly. How did you keep that alive virtually? I make it interactive. I bring my Irukera into the class. Okay. And we give <laughs> blessings and big ups uh, to people who answer questions nicely. Um, we keep it interactive. We exchange cultural experiences okay. that have to do with our brands. Um, we share how other brands here and in other parts of the world have done marketing without breaking the bank. Okay. So one of the things I teach specifically is frugality. Okay. How to do all of this on a small budget and still achieve the kind of share of voice that big brands would achieve. Very important. Very. Give me a lesson from that because, you know, coming from ABL, I get told, you know, you guys have a marketing budget. <laughs> deep pockets. You have deep pockets. You can do whatever. <laughs> so, no, it's even harder when the pockets are deep. But if you have limited uh, resources from a marketing point of view, yes. what's the one thing, one advice you would give a marketer? Become creative. Okay. Look at your market and speak to them in other ways. Um, in the old days, we were just ATL, BTL. Right. And then we, got, we went to through the line. Right. Today, it's all the line. All the line. So if you're going like to be that. sitting at a car wash, uh-huh. if that's where you take your drinks or that's where you hang out with your friends, I want to be there. I want my brand to be talking to you there. So anywhere is a connection point. That's where you go, the touch okay. points. Okay. I also teach how to use less to get more. And I like an example that I take from um, Volvo. Mm-hmm. Now, Volvo is a European company, a yes. Scandinavian company. Mm-hmm. And coming into America where there are huge automobile brands with huge budgets, um, they could not compete on a budget by budget level. Okay. What did Volvo do? One of the biggest times for advertising showcase is the Super Bowl Correct. in America. Volvo did not put an ad on the Super Bowl. Okay. Volvo tweeted to America and said, if you know somebody... Who deserves to get a Volvo? When you see another ad from another car company, tweet to Volvo and they can win a car. What do you think happened? Everybody knew somebody who deserves to win a Volvo for free. So, well, they tweeted. And so Volvo, who did not spend a dime in advertising dollars during the Super Bowl, Bowl, got to be the trending brand for that Super Bowl. So it's called an interception. Voice. Yes, they It's did. called a? Interception. Interception. I'm, yes. I'll, go, I'll go look it up. Please. Interesting story. Very. So again, just back to, so we've learned about what you did. Hmm. What should you, what were you, what did you learn about the pandemic not to do as a marketer? I learned not to take the end consumer's pocket size for granted. Okay. Good one. So a lot of times when we look at who we're speaking to, who's your audience, yeah. um, we do psychographic analysis, we do demographic analysis, and then we say to ourselves, this pocket here is where I should address. Mm. I've stopped doing that. Okay. I teach my classes now to look through the pyramid okay. and look at people, not okay. prices, okay. because people make the decisions that justify the prices. Yes. During this pandemic, oh my goodness, the world went creative. Some of us learned how to make masks 
out of pieces of clothing in our own households. Yes. Some people learned how to import PPEs and make a killing. Yes. So on either side of that divide, there was money exchanging hands and there was value being put into the ecosystem. Yes. It was also a time for many consumers to turn into producers. Right. And so you find people who normally were just buyers were coming out with their own business ideas, with their own concepts. We're doing things. I've seen people in Nairobi park a BMW SUV by the roadside and sell bananas and avocados and pineapples. We have become creative. Yes. That that is marketing on a large scale. It is. Okay. (laughs) I love that. The creativity. Thank you. What is the one book you think? I know you're a reader. You're a writer. (laughs) Yes, Let's first talk about your writing. (laughs) Well, what are you writing right now? Hey, my sister, I've uh-huh. done quite a bit of writing. Okay. In my teens, I was first published by the Post Express Literary Series in Nigeria. Okay. And my editor at that time was a man called Nduka Otiono. Okay. Nduka Otiono made a trajectory change and is today a professor of Africana Studies at Carleton University in Canada. Okay. He's still my mentor. Because of Unduka, I have not been able to stop writing. So if, perchance, Unduka gets to hear this, <laughs> it's all his fault. Um, intermittently, he would call me and say, do not forget your first love. You're supposed to send me some things. You're still very productive. Keep doing it. Do not stop writing. Send the manuscript to this person. Send one to this wow. person. And that's how I got here. So your first love is writing. Yes, it is. And do you write fiction or? Both. Okay. Um, I have academic um, publications from here, from Italy, from the United Kingdom, from the U.S. as well. I've written quite um, widely, mostly on the corner of female entrepreneurship okay. and digital technology. Okay. Uh, I also do a lot of speaking because of that. Um, nonfiction is what I do with my academic research work. Fiction, however, is okay. what I do with my creative mind. Okay. And because I was raised by a Yoruba sage, I grew up with many stories that okay. were handed down as legacies to me. Some years ago, my husband accused me, and he said that it's a crime to keep those stories inside of me. Wow. And so I began to actually actively um, write them down. One of the things I was able to do during the pandemic is sit down and actually finish some manuscripts that I've been working on for some time. So yes, um, so what shortly have you you'll published be lately? Lately, what I am very proud of is the research work, which is nonfiction, that I've published with Aliza Sido. Okay. Um, professor Sido is an assistant professor of entrepreneurship at ESCP in Turin, Italy. Um, because of my teaching, I met Aliza. One day she walked into my marketing class and she sat down. And after she asked me to help administer a questionnaire. She was working on her PhD at that time. After the questionnaire was done, we found out that we we had both worked at BAT. Um, She had been in Hamburg at BAT Germany, and of course I'd worked with BAT in Nigeria. And after Aliza left, she returned to me to ask some questions, and a friendship sort of bloomed from it. Two years ago, I had an idea about Chamas going digital. Mm-hmm. mostly because of what we experienced just before the pandemic. Yeah. We needed to move from being useful to one another as pair groups and investing in one basket to being useful to one another globally. Okay. And so we got other women from other places who wanted to support women who were doing business in Africa right. to come together. And Eliza and I are co-founders of Nampelka, which is 
located or resident in Germany in Hildesheim, which she runs out of Milan, Italy, and I run out of Nairobi in Kenya. Now, I've gone back to that story because it helps me to shine light on where we're at right now. Because of my teaching, I get to meet entrepreneurs every day. Okay. After I'm done teaching them, they still need marketing help. Yes. And so we set up a structure that helps to give these people that kind of help that they need okay. on a pro bono basis okay. to help entrepreneurs grow. And my teaching is more than just imparting knowledge that concerns brands and businesses. It's also trying to grow the economic side of our population. When entrepreneurs are empowered and local businesses grow, national economies also grow. Absolutely. And if we can do this across Africa, imagine the kind of ripple effects that we could have. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you. Your writing is empowering a lot of people. You're able to reach more people with you know, these words of wisdom that you have. Um, <laughs> and obviously, it sounds like you also read a lot. I do. Yeah? I do. So what's the one book you would recommend for any marketer to read? <laughs> like, I, w- I would say that I'm a very unorthodox marketer. So you would normally not find me dip in core marketing books. Okay. I've been able to gather and garner this wisdom across industries. Okay. That book for me would be Freakonomics. And it's written by two Stevens. Steven... Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And what Freakonomics did for me was it shone the light on the other side of marketing. So we're always trying to sell to people. Mm. What do those people see when we are selling to them? How do they interpret our actions, our activities, our brand activities? And what do they take away? from our sales speeches, for example. And it differentiates on two levels, group and expertise. So an expert opinion is respected and usually very expensive too. Yes. (laughs) Right. Uh But when groups come together and by experience decide on an opinion, it's cheaper. It's also well-respected. Give me an example. Yelp. If you have amazing Yelp reviews, you're likely to get more business than if I made you know, an ad campaign like a billboard or a poster for you. People come and give their testimonials as part of your business model. Yes. And that empowers you. So marketing has grown beyond what we do in the orthodox lane yes. to a point where people are now consuming and recreating their own marketing. Take memes for an example. Yeah. Memes have become stories in and of their own. Yeah. There's visual memes. There are audio-visual memes now. Yeah. There are sound memes, like that one that says, Funke! <laughs> <laughs> and it's just about everywhere now. Yeah. Or like the coffin song. Yeah. So all of that, we as marketing people need to key into these opportunities within the markets. Okay. And you will not see this if you don't look at the economics. Okay. So really, we should read for economics. Okay. Mm. That, that's a really good recommendation. <laughs> Thank you. So can you tell me about a time when you failed bravely? Oh, wow. That's a nice story. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me, what did you learn? (laughs) Okay. Let's do it in two stages. First experience would be British American tobacco. When I was on the brand Rothmans, Mm -hmm. we had a promotion, the perfected promotion. Basically, (laughs) at that point, Rothmans had an aging profile. And so my key 
KPI was to get it to be appreciated by a younger generation. And we talked about young adults, 30 and above. Now, when we look at that demographic, it was different from the old Rothman's ad where you saw the pilot and, you know, we had that image at the mind. People thought this is the cigarette that my grandparents or my parents smoke. Now, to rejuvenate it, we had this promo, um, a millionaire promo. If you opened a pack, you found a card. One, two, three. The number three card was the winning card. Okay. And that was the one that was difficult to find. Okay. Eh, my sister. I'm sure. Hmm. Did we put these cards in at the factory level and then find out that it takes a longer time for products to go from factory to end consumer? Right. So our promo time was lapsing and And we we did not have a millionaire, my sister. So I had to (laughs) go and explain to the board why we had expended so much budget and we did not have one single millionaire. Well, I was pregnant with Sam at that time. Okay. I went into the boardroom and stood in front of these amazingly important people. And after a small pause, I said, we are pregnant, obviously, with anticipation. (laughs) (laughs) Our millionaires are on the way, like this. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Literally. And um, (laughs) we found a way to then move the winning cards into the middle at retail. Okay. So we sort of bypassed wholesale for the first half. Okay. So that by bringing it to retail, end consumers could find the cards faster. And then the ones in the wholesale pipeline would catch up with it. Yeah. So towards the end, we had an avalanche of millionaires. Okay. But it did succeed eventually. Okay. Um, We just needed to cross that bridge and cross it creatively. Okay. So yes, um, there will be times when you come up with questions that defy answers, but marketing people find solutions to such questions. Interesting. My my failed bravery story is also about a promotion (laughs) I once did at Coca-Cola in Nigeria. I don't want to talk about it. Oh my goodness. But similar similar situation. Wow. But we learn from that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. (laughs) Do you have another story? Yes, I do. I do have another story. Okay. And um, this one is, I would say that we failed successfully. Now, after Samsung, I moved to Haiti Mm -hmm. around about the time that the earthquake happened. And one of the things that I was hired to do. You moved to Haiti? Yes, my love. Let me just (laughs) reemphasize that. Yes, I moved to Haiti. After Uh, the first earthquake? Yes, I did. Why? Um, <laughs> I, I was needed there. I believed that I was. Okay. And now sitting here talking to you about it, I understand that, yes, indeed, I was needed there. Mm-hmm. I needed to be in Haiti for the rest of my life to unfold. Tell us about that. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, well, the, the story about failing positively was that after the work that we did rebuilding the Voila brand in Haiti, mm-hmm. it was so successful that we were bought by our competition. Okay. Who was bigger than us, but well, okay. that was what we were fighting. We got, you know, absorbed, okay. which worked out for the economy. Okay. Um, now, I moved to Haiti because at about the time that the first earthquake happened, I had an epiphany, and my work was not enough anymore. Okay. It wasn't enough to earn a good salary. It wasn't enough to, like we say, have the soft life. I needed more. There, was, there were things that my job was not giving me. 
Mm-hmm. And I went in search of those things. Okay. Um, when the first pictures and videos came out and I saw Haiti, it looked like Nigeria to me. Mm. And the people looked like my people. Okay. And I felt like I belonged. And so when I got a call from a headhunter out of London asking if I would work in Haiti for a Florida company, my answer was yes. Which and company so was that? It was Trilogy. What do they do? Trilogy International Partners owns telcos in Bolivia, Dominican Republic, okay. and Haiti. Okay. Right. Okay. So voila, Haiti was the baby that I was handed. And when I moved to the island, I realized why I was handed that baby. Okay. I fell in love with the place, with the people. I saw people who were impoverished by situations that were beyond their own control. Yet in spite of it, they were giving all that they had and they were sharing with their neighbors with their people everyone who survived was helping to hold somebody else's hand got to haiti and um, i felt so at home i learned the language it was very easy for me to learn haitian creole has some kiswahili some eve some yoruba some french and when it came together, I felt that, yes, this were my people. I'll give you an example. The word for bean cakes, which is a favorite Nigerian meal, is akara. The word for the same food in Haiti is akra. Ah. The word for broom in Yoruba, which is my first language, my native language, because, well, my mother says English is my first language, is igbale. That's igbale, the broom. Yeah. Right. And that word in Haitian Creole is bale. Uh-huh. So Very similar. Exactly. Yeah. You couldn't live amongst people who spoke like you did yeah. and not feel that you were one of them, part yes. of that entity. Okay. And at about that time, we, my friends and I, Brad Loveless and Taylor Quarles, Taylor is a second generation Haitian lover. Okay. His father had come to Haiti decades before. And when the earthquake happened, he encouraged his sons to come and help out as well. And uh, Martin also came. Martin calls us their father. And these boys and I lived on a hill in Thomasin, a very beautiful complex. Mm -hmm. Now, the man who took care of us was called Abella. Mm -hmm. And Abella was the butler. And he would be there sometimes at 5 Mm a.m. so that we had breakfast and we went to work and he would be there when we came back. We had dinner and he would close after we went to sleep. So one day it looked like it was going to rain and we offered to take Abella home. Mm -hmm. Abella says to us, where I live, cars don't get there. Mm. So we say, we will get as far as a car can get and then we'll do the rest on foot. Mm -hmm. When we eventually got to where Abella lived, we found that he lived in a hovel. It was a Mabati building with plastic covers. And he had a family of five, one of whom was a child with special needs. We could not for the life of us live them like that. You couldn't. No. So Brad, Taylor, and myself, and Nick, we put our money together and would collect our salaries and, you know, would pull the money. And we bought the materials. Taylor designed the building. And we went and we built it with our hands. Um, Hammers, (laughs) shovels, wheelbarrows. So you have built a house. Yes. For an amazing friend who fed us and looked after us. He was not paid anywhere near commensurate salaries for the kind of love that he gave to us. Now, the miracle of this story is that when Abella's neighbors saw us, and the word for foreigners in Haitian Creole is blanc, Mm -hmm. and he saw all these blanc who had come to build (laughs) for his brother. You said to yourself, foreigners have come to build for, you know, one of us. Yeah. You made yourself get up and put your hands in it too. So 
Abella's neighbors, villagers, friends, relatives all came together. All joined in. Yes, and the labor was free. Awesome. Such a um, lovely story. It it is indeed. It is. So then then you're going about your business in Haiti. (laughs) Yes, I was. (laughs) I'm laughing because I know this story. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) And then you, obviously, you're doing such a good job. They want to hire somebody else as well. They came to you and and told you what? They wanted to hire another African woman. Okay, because African women just rock. We're amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're the best thing since sliced bread, even Uh before sliced Uh bread. So um, they had narrowed down on a candidate from Kenya who was sitting in Nairobi. Go Kenya! Go Kenya, Uh baby! Uh And they wanted me to speak with this young lady mm-hmm. because they believed that if I told her my experience since I got there, she would get to see how life was yes. in Haiti. And so um, the call was made from London. They called Nairobi on the one hand, called Paul Prince on the other hand and hooked mm-hmm. us up together. And I met this young lady called Rita Gitobo. Mm-hmm. Today she's Rita Gitobo Njuguna. Okay. You probably know Rita because she handles social media week. Yes, right. I know Rita very well. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so um, I get on the phone and I'm speaking to this kindred spirit. And she says to me, eh, you want me to come to Haiti where there's earthquake and cholera and what, what not? <laughs> so I said Even to me, her, I'd ask the same question. Yeah, yeah, I said, my sister, oh, me, I'm a Niger girl. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting here, you want to be here. Mm-hmm. If you go to a market and there's no Nigerians there, please run. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh-huh. And so she took my word for it. And she came. She accepted the offer. And um, we sent her the ticket. And she wrote it herself through Boston, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, when Rita got to Boston, she hung out with her friends, her cousins. And at 2 a.m., when everywhere shut down, she says, Oh, wow, I need to get to New York mm-hmm. because my flight is from New York mm. to Port au Prince. Mm. Now, she was with her cousin Stella mm. and they were going to drive to New York. Mm. There was a young man there mm. who would not let two women drive to New York at that time of the night. That's, that's a gentleman. He mm. is a mm. gentleman. And so Michael Miano drove them mm. to New York. Mm-hmm. Rita Gitobo got on that flight mm-hmm. and came to me in Port-au-Prince okay. and ended up being the best friend that I had. Okay. Um, in fact, at some point, she was she was in charge of everything me. Uh, she was my next of kin because we were in a place where earthquakes happened, accidents yeah. happened, and all kinds of things could go wrong. Yeah. And she was that person for me. Okay. Fast forward three years later, Funke is going to MIT, mm-hmm. going to school for my master's. And Rita says to me, oh, Boston, that's where my cousins live. Go, you know, remember the cousin that I told you I was with and then I had to drive to New York and yes. come here. I'm like, yeah. I said, okay. So Stella met me at the airport. She was the first person um, that I met when I got to Boston. Okay. That was a Kenyan. Okay. And she came with another Kenyan mm-hmm. and they helped me, got my luggage, basically moved me into my apartment, okay. got me all set for school. Okay. During my first semester, mm-hmm. I had one half day off. Mm-hmm. Now, MIT is a lot of work. Okay. You don't get a lot of time really? off. Mm-hmm. So one of those days when I had half a day, I decided to go hang out in Quincy mm-hmm. with Rita's cousin, Winnie Jeru. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in Winnie's house and the door opens mm-hmm. and three gentlemen that walk in. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Michael Miano, mm-hmm. who is my husband today. Ish. <laughs> 
I, I want to cry again. You know, every time you tell me this story, I get emotional. <laughs> he did not know then when he drove Rita to New York that she was coming to meet his wife and the mother of his children. There you go. You never know the good that you do where it would you know, end up as a harvest for you. So if you had not convinced Rita to take this job in Haiti. <laughs> and if she had not stopped over in Boston to hang out with her cousins. Uh-huh. Yeah. I see how it I wouldn't be here out. today. Fantastic story. And that's how you came to Kenya. That's how Michael I came to Kenya. Michael is obviously Kenyan. Yes. And that's yes. how you, now you became a Kenyan-Nigerian, as yes. we call you. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Such interesting stories. We could go on forever, forever, <laughs> I know. forever. I know. Um, the one thing I want you to tell me, because I love music, we're sitting in a radio station. Yes, indeed. What is your all-time favorite song? And this this is, because when you sent me the list of questions and I looked at that, I had to think back. Uh-huh. And you said all time. Yeah, all time. My all-time favorite song is a classic by Oletta Adams. And the part of it that hits me the, the most is the part that says, um, I don't care how you get here, just get here if you can. At some point it says, cross the desert like an Arab man. Cross the desert like an Arab man. Yeah. I think of myself as someone who's crossed many deserts, mountains, rivers, to get to where I am today. And it's because on the other side of every mountain, there's a bit of my destiny that I'm supposed to encounter. And until I get to it, I'm not fulfilled. And that's, that's how I got here, in a nutshell. There you go. That song really resonates with me. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Funke, is there any last one thing you want to <laughs> reveal to me that I don't know already or advice for young marketers? Advice for young marketers, jump, be brave, take the leap, do it. Not just for the salary or the role, the title, do it for the challenge, do it for the adventure. Do it because it makes your blood pump that little bit extra. That's my advice. You know, you said earlier you're a rebel and I I say the same (laughs) thing about myself. We are rebels with a cause. Indeed. So when you say that, do something that is the cause effect of it. Yes. What is it going to do? How is it going to impact? Mm-hmm. I love what you said. Re- forget about titles, yeah. marketing director, marketing oh, please. manager. It doesn't matter. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's been so much fun, Funke. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you there. coming. I have had fun. I know. We could talk forever. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Mimi Pia. Nime shukuru sana. Hey, your kisahili is on point. I try. Well done. Thank you again. stuff, yeah. This is the iMarket Podcast, brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL, and Capital FM.